this run-along sentence would just tire me out. We need a punctuation in there somewhere, right? That's a little more than a semicolon, a period. And God allows us to come here in the gas station of, of heaven and refuel for what's next to come. Um, I'm really blessed by Advent Hope and um, what it means to me. And it's always wonderful to see each of you here um, every Sabbath. Um, I'm hopeful that one day we'll all be neighbors for eternity. The text of emphasis today is, is a familiar one. It's a short one. It's found in Exodus 20, verse 13. And we all know it. Thou shalt not kill. Now, um, before I pray, I didn't come all the way from Brooklyn to preach a sermonette. As a great pastor once said, sermonettes are for Christianettes. <laughs> but all just aside, in the immortal words of our friend Will, since brevity is the soul of wit and tediousness, the limbs and outward flourishes. Is that right, Tony? I'll be brief. I'll be brief. God, you've brought us here for a reason because you have a message. I pray that you'll hide me so that they will hear your voice and we will leave here changed, changed, changed for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the last five weeks, our sermon series, Tend to Life, has taken us on an unpredictable journey. I think we have all agreed that the compass generally used to navigate the Ten Commandments takes us down a path of do's and don'ts. Interestingly enough, we have become so familiar with this culture of Christianity, which is more inclined to accentuate the negatives of humankind as sinfulness and need to monitor conduct with daily doses of repentance than we are with the magnifying, forgiving, and redemptive nature of God. For some reason, we find something spiritually therapeutic in self-flagellation and incessant reminders of our evil and sinful inclinations. How ironic, since Jesus wishes us to focus on his love and the cleansing power of his sacrificial gift. Now, in all fairness, particularly when traversing the terrain of the Old Testament, where we found ourselves for the last few weeks, a time when there appeared to be a disproportionate amount of violence, and the God of the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth is a drastic contrast to the New Testament's turn-the-other-cheek God, one can certainly appreciate this mindset. Fortunately for us, we have a pastor who has chosen to steer us down the road where landmarks reveal the true character of the God of our destination. He's a God of life, and thus a God of love, and love demands forgiveness and thrives on maintaining harmony and community. And so we are discussing these instructions to place context and a fuller understanding of the God who saw it fit that for the only recorded time in history of the world to instruct us with these 10, using his voice, his words, in his penmanship. Remarkable, wouldn't you say? 
I think that this makes the Ten Commandments especially important. Before we explore the very interesting Sixth Commandment, join me in recapping briefly what we have learned thus far about the characteristics of God and, these instruction, and what these instructions reveal. The first, thou shalt have no other gods before me, demonstrates the competitive side of God. Now this competitiveness is not to be confused with the type that exists between two competing athletic teams for an ornamental cup or medal. Neither that of two prepubescent thinking men, Biff and Waldo, wagering to claim the attention of Aphrodite before the other. You'll have to listen to my last sermon to get the reference. No, this is a race to claim our soul, spurred by a matchless, unconditional love. There is little wonder why it stands atop the nine to follow. Then Todd, again in discussing number two, showed us the jealous aspect of God. He craves priority, wanting to be first above everything and everyone. And why not, when knowing that a distraction from the Savior will result in our drowning in a sea of self-destruction? He simply asks that we turn our eyes upon him and look full in his wonderful face and witness the things of earth growing strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Tony Sebro, in poetic underscore, amplified the ability of our God to be embarrassed. How novel. God embarrassed? Preferring that we avoid the hypocrisy of claiming to be one thing in word while avoiding to publish our love for him to the public. Two Sabbaths ago, Kyle then facilitated a panel discussion that explored God's desire to spend time with us, featured in that fulcrum fourth commandment on the Sabbath. He is a God of relationship who sees the value of quality time and the importance of commitment and obedience. In this instance, God asks not that we should not, but simply that we remember to keep the date he has chosen to commune with us. Commitment, an essential ingredient to all healthy relationships. And last week, Todd reminded us that obedience to God can be achieved by honoring those he has charged with taking care of us, our parents. We learn that God respects woman as much as man as he, as he commands that we obey not only our fathers, but also our mothers, equally. How many times does God have to tell us that he created man distinguishable from woman for purposes of diversity and not inequality? It's an intelligent theme that rings true throughout all creation. At least up to this point, I am encouraged by how much I have in common with God. Aren't you? Jealousy, pride, prone to be embarrassed, etc. These are all characteristics that we share with God. After all, we were created in his own image. That we have similarities makes him so much more available and understandable, and it explains the foresight that exists in the creation story and the compatibility he identifies in us. Once again, it's about achieving relationship. And then there is number six. 
thou shalt not kill. Now, since I'm amongst family, I'm comfortable with admitting that I thought when asked to make this presentation this morning that this was going to be an easy one. This presentation, one, because my career has forged a somewhat intimate relationship with murder, and secondly, this commandment above the other seems obvious, self-explanatory, to the point where I was forced to consider why of all the transgressions that we are prone to commit did God deem it necessary to inform us that the taking of human life is ill-advised? Really, God? Duh. Now, while there are people who may find killing another human being easier than others, I would hazard a guess that no one, except they be desensitized through education or training, will find murder natural or acceptable. It should be noted that my research informs me that while the King James Version of the Bible reads, thou shalt not kill, scholarship concludes that the word used in the original Hebrew is more consistent with the word murder, which for me makes this commandment even more puzzling. Murder, simply put, is the intentional taking of a human life. That is to say, while all murders are killings, not all killings are murder. Further, murder is specific to humans only. In fact, God realized this distinction very early and recognizing that the reaction to the taking of human life could be just as visceral were it unintentional. So he ordered places of refuge for those guilty of justified for justified and accidental or unintentional killings. Murder is an intentional crime where the perpetrator's intent is to cause the death of another. Sometimes it's quite obvious. For example, a man brandishes a gun, points it at an individual and pulls the trigger, discharging a missile that, piercing the body, causes the target's death. Or a woman plunges a knife into the chest of another woman, causing her demise. Each of these would be considered murder for obvious reasons. However, were the gun fired in a crowded street with no identifiable target, or the knife plunged into the person's leg or arm without an announced intent, with death being the result, there is more likely to be a charge of manslaughter or a negligent, reckless qualification which would be treated with considerably more leniency than murder because the requisite mens rea or state of mind, Gianluca, Tony, is absent. One more final example. Two men are walking down the street in opposite directions. Their shoulders bump. True story. Each pauses to look at each other each interprets the other's look as a challenge. Each decides not to back down. Neither of them considers that a simple, I'm sorry, would dilute the escalating tension. Are you digging the picture? Image is necessary. One spreads his legs and raises both arms to his hip with palms facing upward and there's a tilt of the head and a sharp counter nod. 
you know the universal posture for some. <laughs> Translation, pray tell, now what are you going to do? The other steps forward and responds in kind. True story. Now they are face to face. I mean really face to face, like two pugilists at a pre-fight press conference. They are screaming obscenities. Their tempers flare meteorically to a boil, then without notice, one swings a menacing closed fist to the other's jaw, sending the victim like a felled tree to the ground. His knees do not bend. The puncher pauses briefly over his victim before walking away. The injured man lies motionless, his body crumpled in an unnatural position. Dead. Murder? No. There is hardly an argument that the puncher with only one punch intended to kill. And while the family of the deceased will not be convinced otherwise, the law requires proof of intent to kill by word or conduct. And in this instance, it just cannot be proven. In Exodus 20, verse 13, the commandment is specifically referring to the wanton disregard or respect for human life that often accompanies murder. If I were to ask you, seated here today, who of you has murdered? I would like to think that near a hand would rise. In fact, were I to ask who here knows of anyone who has murdered, I would think that almost the same response would take place. But in the interest of protecting any criminal element amongst us, I will refrain from asking. Now, I don't know about you, but I am content to explore no further and conclude that while I may be prone or guilty at some point of having broken all the other nine, this one just doesn't apply to me. I am comfortable telling you that I have never murdered anyone nor do I have any intention or desire to do so. But that still leaves this nagging question. What makes me so special that in my sinful and unworthy state, I have earned exemption from this one commandment? God chose only 10 of the myriad of transgressions that I could be guilty of. It just makes no sense that only nine should apply. And so I succumb. And I dig deeper. The answer lies in the theme that runs through each of the commandments we have discussed to date. God desires a relationship with each of us. And these ten tenets hold the key to achieving this union that God so desires. Thus giving us a glimpse into the perfect, awesome soul of God. How humbling. God has no issue with death. It's a, it's a non-factor. To him, it is but a sleep. So the murderer is of no concern. He is the author of life, and so he owns the keys to the chambers that is death. At any time, he can unlock those portals and allow life, once caged, to escape and experience freedom again. What God is most interested in is the condition of our hearts. 
the state of our mind, the mens rea, our willingness to choose love over hate, our willingness to concede rather than fight. In other words, his focus is on the murderer and not the murder. Like the first century Jews, we recognize that anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And so we take particular pride in not having broken the sixth. And while Leviticus, Leviticus 19 expands the commandments to include the sin of discrimination against foreigners, verses 33 and 34, and highlights the destructive nature of anger and hate, Jesus is the one who intensifies the, de the de definition of murder to a disturbingly uncomfortable degree. In his famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, he speaks to the throngs of people and says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Raka comes from the Aramaic term, Reka. It was a derogatory expression meaning empty-headed, insinuating a person's stupidity or inferiority. It was an offensive name used to show utter contempt for another person. Here Jesus makes it clear that using abusive language, words that belittle and demean, language that is designed to hurt and break another's spirit is tantamount to murder. Unmeasured anger and hate of any form are the roots of murder. And just as one might say, you know, as far as that adultery thing is concerned, I've thought about it, but I've never done it, so I'm cool. Jesus says, not exactly. For as a man or woman thinketh in their hearts, so they are. Advent hope, I am a murderer. And just because I haven't pierced a man's heart with a knife makes me no less a murderer if I have hurled an unkind word at another human being. I am no less guilty of murder if I have joked at another's expense or ridiculed or treated them as if inferior to me. I have murdered. But as in all circumstances, Jesus provides a solution as he continues in his sermon. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, in other words, before you kneel to pray at night or prepare to come to Advent Hope on a Sabbath, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come back and then offer your gift. Pick up the phone, send a text or email. Here's a novel idea. Find a piece of paper, and if texting 
hasn't wrecked your memory of how to write, pen a note. Dear mom, dad, sister, brother, friend, former wife or husband, it's been a long time since we, since we bumped shoulders. I did or said some hurtful things when I was around when all I should have said was sorry. Well, it's been too long, but I hope it's not too late to say it now. I'm sorry. It might take some work to make things right between us, but I'm willing to try if you are. So send me a text if, you've, if you haven't forgotten how to write. Jesus continues in his sermon, settle matters quickly. Don't let them fester with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together. On the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison, that proverbial prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. We pride ourselves on our ability to compartmentalize our anger and resentment for others. We block it out and live our lives loving others and worshiping God, forgetting that the hatred and animus is there, still living in us, still living with us. My Advent Hope family, let me close with this. If our desire is to have an intimate, life-changing relationship with Jesus, we have got to clean our hearts of resentment, unkindness, unhealthy prejudices, discrimination, superiority, anger, and hate. We have to measure our words when speaking to our loved ones, our spouses, and friends lest we be guilty of the sixth. If there is someone in your life or my life who, for whatever reason, we believe has wronged us, to the extent that our feelings of resentment, anger, perhaps even hate, fix it. Fix it. God has fixed it for us. And God so desperately craves a relationship with us that he is willing to forgive us at any expense, even to the death of the cross. But he cannot forgive us if we are unwilling to forgive. And that is not a threat. It's the reality of salvation. Amen.